Thank you. I was told it's not ugly enough. And so I've been sharing that um, I'm not hip enough to pull off Zach's ironicness. So uh, enjoy the Christmas dinosaurs, as we do. Uh, I'm thankful that the Edge is joining us today, by the way. Edge members, hopefully you got your um, sheets, your questions this morning. I think those are passed out to you. And thank you in advance, Andrew, for um, running the slideshow for me today. I appreciate that. Also, nice mustache. Better than I can grow. My son has taken to staring at people. He's four years old, and he's trying to understand the world. People look different. People say different things. People behave differently when put into different situations. And this causes my son to ask questions. And the most common of these questions is why. Why is she dressed like that, Daddy? Why is he making that noise? Why is he so little, Daddy? Why does she have that earring in her nose? Why does she have no hair? Why does he have to be in a wheelchair? Why does she look so funny with her eyes like that? There's nothing inherently wrong with his questions, and yet they make me feel uncomfortable. His questions make me uncomfortable because of my own insecurities, and maybe because I feel embarrassed that my son, who did I mention is only four years old, is asking something that I would be considered inappropriate or rude if I said. And every time he asks the question, why, he's trying to understand his world better, and he's asking me and a handful of others to help him. And every time I'm confronted with a choice, do I shoo away or ignore his question, hoping that he'll forget about it and move on? Do I tell him it's rude to stare and to ask such questions and thereby teach him that being curious about people who are different from him is wrong? Or do I take the time, even if briefly, to explain to him a little bit about why that person is different and how those choices or circumstances make he or she unique? What do we do when we're confronted with circumstances that make us ask, why? Well, from NHCC in Pikesville, it's This Bleak Midwinter Life, distributed by New Hope Community Church, which may or may not be international. I'm Matthew Winner. Each week we feature a topic and stories based around that topic. Today on our sermon, one song that's been covered by hundreds of musicians, sung by millions of people just like you and me, and the stories behind that song that just might cause you to think differently about it the next time you hear it. Our sermon today is in four acts. Act one, this little piggy went to Goblin Market. Act two, the grave's little toaster. Act three, bleak to me softly, but tell me no lies. Act four, this is my winter song to you. I've got some great stories for you, so stick around and let's pray. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, many of us in this congregation have known a bleak midwinter. We have experienced a time where things felt cold. We have seen life pass. We have lost hope in ourselves or in others. I pray today, Lord, that the words you have inspired can pass from our lips and our ears into our hearts and the hearts of others so that we can know you more intimately and experience your words more intimately. Help me also, Lord, to speak the words you place on my heart and on my tongue so that in studying your perfect word, I can become closer with my brothers and sisters at New Hope Community. For you are holy in all things, and your word is good. Amen. I'd like to begin today by reading a passage from Luke. 
followed by the original poem of In the Bleak Midwinter, which was adapted shortly after its publication into the hymn that many of us are familiar with. Luke 2, verses 8 through 14 from the New International Version read, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And this is the original text in the bleak midwinter written by Christina Rossetti. Andrew, each verse, we're going to zoom on each verse, so if you want to click now, it'll zoom closer to each one. Okay? In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship day and night, a breast full of milk and a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there. Cherubim and seraphim thronged the air. But only his mother in her maiden bliss worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give? I give him, give my heart. Act 1. This little piggy went to Goblin Market. In the Bleak Midwinter was written in 1872 by Christina Rossetti, an English poet who penned it in response from Scribner's Monthly Magazine for a Christmas poem. In 1906, following Rossetti's death, the poem was set to music by Gustav Holst and published in the English hymnal as a Christmas carol. Harold Dark uh, also wrote an anthem for the poem a few years later, but Holst's version uh, is the piece most widely recognized and sung. Christina was one of four children and was educated through the study of religious works, classics, and fairy tales, and novels. Her father was a poet and a political exile, and though not much is known about her mother, her oldest brother went on to become an artist and poet, while her other siblings became writers as well. She was born in 1830 and by all accounts had a happy childhood growing up in London. But at 10 years old, Christina found herself in circumstances that would affect her life indefinitely. Her father gave up his teaching job at King's College when his physical health began to deteriorate. He was diagnosed with persistent bronchitis, tuberculosis, and began losing his sight. He also suffered from depression and, over the following 11 years leading up to his death, his health never recovered. His family faced severe financial difficulties, and in order to keep the family out of poverty, Christina's mom and siblings all found work about town, from teaching to becoming a live-in governess. All the while, Christina became more and more isolated at home. Imagine being at home with your family, 
for half of your childhood, reading together, playing together, sharing meals, and taking care of the house together. And then suddenly finding yourself at home, alone, for greater and greater amounts of the day, day after day, while your two eldest siblings and mom leave the house for work. Your other brother attends art school, and your dad remains in bed in pain and depressed and for larger and larger amounts of time. Increased isolation tampered with Christina's emotional stability, and by the age of 14, she left school after suffering a nervous breakdown. Not long after she was suffering from bouts of depression and related illness. At 14. What a miserable time for a child in the prime of her youth. How was one to deal with all the emotions and suffering that Christina faced on a daily basis? She wrote. The earliest signed poems we have from Christina were from 1842, when she was just 12 years old. She was writing poems that imitated that of her favorite poets, but soon she began experimenting with verse and form for her own. Her work often featured meditations on death and loss, which may not come as a surprise, and in 1948 she published her first two poems, Death's Chill Between and Heart's Chill Between. I say all of this because in between Christina's happy childhood in the mid-1830s and the time when she wrote the poem in the bleak midwinter in 1872, she experienced mortality in a myriad ways, failed suitors, inflection of near-fatal disease, breast cancer, and a persistent tumor, and recurring devotion to her faith. In 1862, when Christina was 31, she published what would become her most famous collection of poems, establishing Rossetti as the most important female of her time, most important uh, female poet of her time. The work was entitled Goblin Market and Other Poems. The title piece, Goblin Market, is a powerful cautionary tale on feeding into indulgence. I'd like to summarize it for you now. Two young sisters live in a house by themselves. Their names are Lizzie and Laura. No mention is made in the poem of what happened to their parents of these, stu- uh, these sisters, just that the sisters live in a house alone. Every evening, the sisters walk to a nearby stream to draw water. Each evening, they hear the sounds of the goblin market on yonder hill. The goblin merchants are said to sell their fruit of remarkable abundance, full of great variety, delicious, savory, mouth-watering fruit on which to indulge yourself. On one particular evening, the sisters journey to the stream to gather water, but Laura lingers there while Lizzie sets out for home. She has heard the song of the goblin market played by its merchants and carried on the wind to her. The market is enticing her, and tonight she will not resist its call. She gorges on delicious fruit, eating until she cannot bite another further bite. And then she returns home in a trance. Lizzie, seeing her sister in this state, reminds her of that cautionary tale of Jeannie, who likewise partook of the goblin's feast and who died just at the beginning of the winter from a slow, insufferable decline. No grass grew over her grave. Laura brushes off Lizzie's concerns and remarks that she'll return to the goblin market and bring back arms full of delicious fruits for her and for her sister to enjoy. And evening after evening, Laura and Lizzie make their way down to the stream to gather water, but Laura can no longer hear the sound of the merchants. Maddened by her frustration and haunted by Jeannie's tale, over time, Laura's health begins to decline. Desperate to save her dying sister, Lizzie ventures to the goblin market one evening and attempts to bring fruits home for Laura. The goblins do their best to entice Lizzie, 
to eat, but she refuses, insisting that she needs to bring the fruit home to her sister. The goblins become enraged and they set upon Lizzie, hands full of fruit, determined to force Lizzie to eat. She narrowly escapes and makes it back to the bedside of suffering Laura. Laura laps the fruit remains and juices from Lizzie's clothes, but it appears Lizzie's efforts were for naught. Laura's pain amplifies and she, she thrashes about in fever. Lizzie's fears that Laura will not make it through the night. But come morning, Lizzie awakens to see that Laura has made a full recovery. Both sisters live to tell of the evil goblins to children of their own, a warning for generations to come and a testament of the powerful sisterly love. Christina Rossetti, she was no stranger to suffering, but she was not without hope or faith. Act two. The Grave's Little Toaster. In preparing for this sermon, I researched not only the origin of the hymn, but Christina's life itself, and I tried not to assign meaning to every significant life experience, but something stuck out that I couldn't stop thinking about. And I would end up thinking about this particular infliction for weeks leading up to this sermon. Christina Rossetti suffered from Graves' disease in later decades of her life. This autoimmune disease most commonly affects the thyroid, causing it to enlarge to more than twice its size. Raise your hand if you know what the thyroid does. Neither did I. Let me stop and explain what the thyroid does for the sake of those who might not know. I happen to be one of those people who didn't know. The thyroid gland is located in the front of your neck, and it produces thyroid hormones. Thyroid hormones help all your organs work well. They control how your body uses food for energy. Thyroid hormones affect your metabolism rate, which means uh, how fast or slow your brain, heart, muscles, liver, and other parts of your body work. If your body works too fast or too slowly, you won't feel well. For example, if you don't have enough thyroid hormone, you might feel tired and cold. Or if you have too much thyroid hormone, you might feel nervous and jumpy and warm. Christina Rossetti experienced hyperthyroid symptoms, including increased heartbeat, muscle weakness, Disturbed sleep and irritability. Uh, Full disclosure here, I'm going to read from Wikipedia. Symptoms of the resultant hypothyroidism are mainly insomnia, hand tremor, hyperactivity, hair loss, excessive sweating, shaking hands, itching, heat intolerance, weight loss despite increased appetite, diarrhea, frequent defecation, palpitations, muscle weakness, and skin warmth and moistness. And one of the most recognizable qualities of Graves' disease is on your bulletin because your eyes enlarge. So imagine walking about town and everyone staring at you, and this is the image that they see. This is the image that was in my mind while I was preparing this sermon, and one that I couldn't shake. People with hyperthyroidism may experience behavioral and personality changes, including psychosis, mania, anxiety, agitation, and depression. I cannot assume the kind of person these symptoms made Rosetti, but I can't help but think of the tremendous ways she must have suffered. None of these symptoms take, uh, taken alone are so debilitating that any one of us couldn't handle it. But over the course of decades, I know that the effect would be taxing on me. I'm currently having a difficult time at my job. The expression of a workplace being, quote, not a good fit is something I have not before experienced, but one that makes it incredibly difficult to return to day after day. It causes me to question my effectiveness in the classroom. It makes me doubt my ability to teach. 
I find myself irritable, agitated, and overwhelmed with feelings that I resent myself for feeling. I fear the person I'm becoming and the person other people see in me. And this is after 22 months. Rossetti, for all I could read of her, was a woman of faith. She wrote and published devotions for children and adults. She had three different suitors and declined to marry each on account of feelings that her faith would be compromised. She surrounded herself with her friends and by all accounts did not leave life alone, but in the company of the ones who loved her. But I think to my son and to the people we pass when we're at a restaurant or at a store or at the mall or any other public setting, and I think about him asking, why? And how it would feel to be on the receiving end of so many whys, especially on the days when you're feeling so irritable, so in pain, so noticed for your flaws. Those days feel cold and miserable. They feel raw and biting, bitter and inhospitable. Those days feel bleak. Act three, bleak to me softly, but tell me no lies. All throughout my childhood, whenever we sang this song in church in the bleak midwinter, I wondered how difficult it must have been for Mary and Joseph to have followed a shining star over hills and fields while the cold winter blew. And all to have a baby, not in a warm, sterile room, but in an open, public, filthy stable. I'm not sure if it was just that my Sunday school teachers never fully explained climate discrepancy in the context of our Savior's origin story, or if my parents never satisfied my curiosity when I asked why. Nevertheless, I stand before you now and own that I cannot think of the birth of Jesus without also envisioning a snow-covered scene where harsh wind blows and not another soul can be seen. So I return to Luke 2, verses 8 to 14. Let's go one more. Thank you. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy to all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on heaven peace to those on whom his favor rests. The shepherds saw a sight that they had never seen before, and it terrified them. They were alone in their fields at night. Have you driven by a pasture at night? After your eyes adjust to the light provided only by the stars and reflecting from the moon, you begin to see those things that reflect the light more clearly. The white of a sheep's coat, for example. And then a radiant light appears from nowhere, and much like someone flips on your bedroom lights in the middle of the night, you're instantly disoriented and lost, and at the mercy of the light's source. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And the sign the angels tell the shepherds is to look for a child wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. This must have been an unusual sight. Poor as anyone in all of the town might have been, the angels point to only one who was born in a manger. 
Can you imagine that? How desperate the conditions our Lord was born in, how bleak. Verse 1 of In the Bleak Midwinter says, In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. And it later picks up enough for him, whom cherubim worshipped day and night, a breast full of milk, a manger full of hay. Enough for him, whom angels fall down before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. Christina Rossetti saw in the Bethlehem story a connection to the cold, lifeless scene so many of us have looked on in the bleak midwinter. At a time when life is hidden from view and the harshness of the weather drives others indoors. At a time when all around us feels cold and miserable, raw and biting, bitter and inhospitable, there is still hope. And when we feel we have nothing to give, there's still the most important gift of all. Act 4. Oh, go ahead. This is my winter song to you. The poem ends with these words. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can, what I can, I give him. Give my heart. Yet what I can, I give him. Give my heart. What is it you have to give? And what have you withheld from giving for feeling that it's not worthy enough or special enough or valuable enough or meaningful enough? When I hear in the bleak midwinter, the words stir up something in me. I'm reminded that I have in me a tremendous gift to give, but I'm also reminded that it is a gift worth giving. There's a value in your kind and selfless deeds. There's a value in your sincerely spoken words. There's a value in giving up your time for the sacrifice of others. There is value in allowing someone else's needs to be met before your own. There is value in loving with your whole heart beyond shame or embarrassment. There is value in knowing that giving your heart is giving to God, and that giving ourselves to God is the most important gift we can give. Of all of the versions I listened to of In the Bleak Midwinter, and there are hundreds, literally hundreds, if you uh, have the Spotify app on your computer, you can access all of these hundreds. Um, they all share the same tone, the same feeling, and the same reverence. It's, I think, one of those rare hymns that just hasn't been changed, hasn't been tampered with, for the most part. You can find them, but for the most part. 
And so I leave you with these words. In this bleak midwinter, frosty wind may moan, and the earth may stand hard as iron, and water like a stone. Snow may fall, snow on snow, snow on snow. In this bleak midwinter, whenever it be so, but we can find the Lord our God in this bleakness, and we can find new life. And we can breathe new life into our own words and into our own acts. Please allow me to pray for us. Lord our God, you have given us a great gift. You have granted us the ability to ask why. Lord, please place on our hearts the gift of giving of ourselves, of our time, of our talent and treasures, of our heart. So that when people ask us why, our answer can be out of love. From a place once bleak, but now filled with hope and with new life. In your name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we close our time together.